You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, thanks for your support of the premium podcast where my history can beat up your politics. A heads up that we have some great stuff coming up on the other feed. I have a discussion of Andrew Jackson and President Trump coming up, as well as I engaged in a couple discussions with Dr. Paul Cartledge at the University of Cambridge about Greek democracy and democracy today. That's going to be a really interesting two podcasts on that. But for the faithful, I'm going to take on some questions that I've received, mostly from Cora, but some from listeners, and also address more on the emoluments clause. You know, you can tweet me at myhist, at M-Y-H-I-S-T. You can email me. Best way to get me is Bruce at MyHistoryCanBeatUpYourPolitics.com. If there was no Constitution, what would happen? You know, sometimes I like Quora for just the craziest questions. If there was no Constitution, what would happen? Um, well, the Constitution was an improvement on the Articles, and so the Articles would would still apply. You'd still have a permanent union between the states, but you'd have a much more difficult union that required unanimous decision in many cases. Um Without any kind of constitution, I believe there were, there is likely to be some other form of enhanced alliance between states or groups of states that would be nearly just as strong as the constitution. The advantages to facing the world with one voice and the negative effect of so many taxes and currencies would be too much to bear not to take such a step. But there would be no fundamental law and no protections for individuals that would invade state borders. Protections for individuals and their rights would have to be done at the state level. And you would be at the mercy of your state capital and the legislature there. Uh, you would, you could have a situation where a few states would form an alliance of laws and then you'd have a greater place to appeal to your, to your, for your rights. Um, states could introduce taxes on imports, their own tariffs, and pursue at least trade policy with foreign nations. I mean, in the Articles of Confederation, true foreign policy would still be handled by a confederation government and Congress. States would be bickering about their territories, state borders. The process of new states added to the confederation would be much slower than the very fast procedure in the Constitution. And it's unlikely that we would have a United States that goes all the way to the West Coast, certainly not one that includes Alaska and Hawaii, not under confederation. The bickering would have led to delays, and other nations would have had time, I believe, to grab more of a foothold. On the other hand, here's a positive. Americans would be a lot more knowledgeable about state government. TV stations would focus on state policy and state political players. We wouldn't avoid gubernatorial elections, or state legislative elections, and we'd know for sure who our governor is. We might forget the name of the Confederation or Trade Alliance president, but you'd know who your governor was. So that state-level involvement's better, but there's a whole lot of negative trade-offs. 
This one's a pretty simple. Uh, did they name Washington, D.C. after George Washington? And, of course, the answer is yes. It was named so by the commissioners who were appointed to select the site and manage the federal city. The federal city was created from land that was donated by landowners under the um, supervision of the states of Maryland and Virginia. They didn't end up using the Virginia land, and that was returned. So the area that the Washington, D.C. location, the federal city, is on is Maryland land close to the existing settlement of Georgetown, Maryland, which is now part of Washington, D.C. Okay, Washington, D.C. was named that during George Washington's lifetime, but before the city had become the seat of the federal government, or really when it was in any shape for people to move down there in large numbers. It was under construction during George Washington's lifetime. It was named Washington during George Washington's lifetime. Washington owned lots in the city. But he did not live to see the city being finished. He died in 1799. During his lifetime, he was supervising the construction and the planning for the federal city, walk, working with uh, Lefant in terms of the design of the federal city. He would have referred to it that way. All right, Washington would have said federal city or sometimes the district, District of Columbia, in his letters. Now, this participation that Washington had in the public auction becomes interesting in the emoluments debate that's going on. And I did the cast last year on George Washington and the emoluments clause. And the reason I did that is because so many people defending the president on emoluments charges were referring to George Washington. So I really wanted to get into what was going on with Mount Vernon. What was the relationship between private citizen and businessman? George Washington, really international businessman, George Washington, flower sold all over the world, and George Washington, the president. Here's the clause, Article 1. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of Congress, accept of any present, emolument, office, or title of any kind whatsoever from any king, prince, or foreign state. What I wasn't able to get into yet on the um, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics regular podcast was the reaction that I received, in particular a uh, reaction from one of the writers of an amicus brief on behalf of President Trump's position in the court case that's still going on on this matter. And uh, his name is Seth Tillman. Here's what he said in regards to George Washington and the points made in the cast. As for the public purchases of land at a public auction, you give a number of reasons for suggesting that emoluments related instructions did not apply to Washington. You suggest he was exceptional and a hero and not just a president. But if he was president, the law applied to him. There's no constitution or legal exception for heroes. And he had political opponents and commercial rivals who were well-placed to object to his impropriety. Where is the record of their objections? More importantly, a GW is on record multiple times indicating how important he thought his own contact was in establishing precedent for future administrations. He would have been horrified at the idea that he was above the laws that applied to others. If he did, he meant it as guidance for the future. Isn't there a simple explanation, Seth Tillman writes, for his participation in the auction? And that is, 
presidential purchases and transactions with the federal government are not emoluments. Full stop. You also don't deal with diplomatic gifts received by presidents. For example, both George Washington and Thomas Jefferson received diplomatic gifts while president. They accepted and kept those gifts, all without congressional consent. You can see them at Mount Vernon. Full-length framed portrait of Louis Sixteenth and Monticello, a bust of Alexander I. There's a simple explanation. Presidents are outside the scope of the Foreign Emoluments Clause. They kept the gifts because they thought they were entitled to. And no one complained because contemporaries agreed with that assessment. And uh, here's how I responded. Thanks for listening. I do have some disagreements with your position, mostly around the public auction of federal city lands and the overly narrow context that is placed in. But first, it is correct to say that in that Emoluments podcast, I don't get into gifts to presidents agreed. It was a long cast. We tried to tackle a lot. We do address John Jay and Ben Franklin and the gifts they received from foreign entities. John Jay getting that horse, not just the horse, but at the beginnings of a line of breeding horses from the king of Spain, who is excited to give it to him. But scope, I think, is the key here. My take on this would be that busts, portraits, routine diplomatic gifts earned subtle congressional approval by non-action. And there is weariness with old Dutch rules about diplomatic gifts. And there was the desire to act on more important items in Congress, but doesn't reflect a complete seating of free reign of all presidents to conduct private business with foreign governments and expect no review or even at some point censure. Had Louis XVI, for instance, granted George Washington land in France, I suppose we would have heard a bit about those foreign emoluments. Had George Washington opened up Mount Vernon as a hotel for visitors and charged and foreign entities came to Mount Vernon for that purpose, that would be a better hypothetical. Of course, George Washington did allow visitors to Mount Vernon and they did come, but he wasn't charging for them. It remains hypothetical, those things. Most of Trump's critics on this issue, I suspect, would not be thinking it would be a problem for Donald Trump to receive a portrait of Theresa May when they're debating this issue. They're talking about something greater. There's an additional point which applies to both this and the public auction. Should we assume that congressional non-action is consent for all future actions? The Congress is a democratic body, a busy one, and it acts and investigates when it needs to. Their powers are not surrendered by lack of use. In terms of uh, in the cast, yes, we discussed that George Washington was a hero. He's the first president. I think it's a little reductive to say that we're just saying that because he's a, a hero, he gets away with it and doesn't set precedent. Washington's status as a national hero, and more importantly, the first of agreed stature and popularity, cannot be dismissed in a comparison to a current president. A court, I concede, may agree with that. A president's a president kind of thing. I'll leave that to the lawyers. The public will have a different opinion. As I'm sure anyone will see, when you bring up Washington in a public debate, Washington comparisons to current presidents don't generally sit lightly with people. I find that if I make such a reference, I usually have to find more presidents and more examples than just Washington with making a comparison to a modern president because Washington is so exceptional. I'll add that Washington did not have a significant political rival. Like One of the things that Mr. Tillman said was, hey, he had rivals and they'd call him out. 
I don't think that was really true in the 1790s. It was to an extent, indeed, that he was above criticism from other politicians. They would fear a loss of social grace, press scorn, and perhaps dual challenges if they spoke ill of Washington. Jefferson, for instance, probably one of the larger figures who disagreed with Washington, when he disagreed, he left the government and would not speak ill of him. He's the closest to a rival, and even he falls far below at the time, at least. So that could explain why there isn't any criticism of such actions. Uh, to some extent, it's trivial, though, because I agree with the conclusion of Washington's participation in a public auction was public, and no one criticized it, and that he would not have done it, I agree, if he considered it improper. Here's where we disagree. The reasons why no one criticized his role in the public auction of land about the federal city, and the reason I think no one would even think of criticizing it, is not because he was immune from congressional review of any potential business conflicts at any time, or that all presidents are immune from review of Congress of any such conflicts at any time, but because the federal city was a unique act of nation building and not merely old federal property being sold. He was invited to participate when it stalled, to boost it. The landowners who donated the land that Washington, D.C. is on specify that the president will have sole power of directing this city. He's in total control, works with the designer, appoints the commissioners, and it's named after him. This makes the project very different from, say, asking for a favorable grain price if Washington was selling grain to federal troops or something like that, which probably would have incurred criticism. There are initial auctions that he does not participate in for the federal city in 1791. They don't go very well, and they lead to a possibility that the whole project might fail. He's a reluctant investor. To his brother Samuel Washington, who wanted a loan, Washington said, taxes and very heavy ones, unavoidable expenses, and buildings which I was importuned on public considerations to erect in the federal city were standing in the way of him loaning money. His friend and federal city investor Thomas Law writes that the public might have encouragement to build General Washington commence two houses. And there's many other documents that support this view of the reason why he got involved in this public auction. Federal city land is characterized in your brief, in, in Seth Tillman's brief, as valuable. But that does not sit well with the history of the time. After a speculative bubble, the lots were very difficult to sell. By the year of his death, Washington's telling prospector buyer-renter George Walker, I don't propose to be a loser in these buildings. And then his letters, eyewitness, visitor accounts, letters to the commissioners, and his will indicate George Washington's desire to find, to found a national university. Here's where the Potomac uh, shares donated by the uh, Virginia legislature come in. He donates them for this purpose. His intention was to use some of his property for a national university. That, I must say, is not in the public debate. And that's why I did the podcast. It's helpful to understanding the situation. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. It's not only bad to erode the mechanism of the Emoluments Clause as a protector against corruption in government, but it has the possibility of shaming Washington, of seeing Washington as a common speculator when he had a philanthropic and nation-building purpose. I mean, that's my view of the emoluments. On one side, they're saying it doesn't apply to presidents at all, and I don't agree with that. I don't think there's any way. Uh, Bruce, I was asked, the 2016 Senate refused to provide advice and consent for Judge Merrick Garland's nomination to the Supreme Court as required by the Constitution. Did President Obama not fail to uphold his obligations as well when he failed to appoint him anyway? Uh, the key problem there is that the president's allowed to make an appointment when the Senate's in recess, and in effect, the United States Senate no longer goes into recess. Now, this is something I think just will have to keep being examined and keep being debated, but because there's a reason for those recess appointments, and I guess it's a passive reason. In other words, it wasn't expected that the Senate would be meeting 365 days a year, There'd be times the president would need to make an appointment, and so the mechanism's there. But now what they do is a pro forma Senate meeting. And literally, you will have the room in the Senate chamber, and there may be one senator. There could be two, could be three, who will sit there, read a few things, and bang a gavel. And they make sure to do that every day. And the Supreme Court has found in recent cases, that that constitutes the Senate being in session and the president cannot make that appointment. It was first an issue during George W. Bush's administration. It was used by Republicans when they regained control of the Senate 2010 in 2014, and it uh, you know continues today. Do students taking American history and even Trump himself still learn about the Smoot-Hawley tariffs and their consequence of deepening the Great Depression. Yeah, I believe Smoot-Hawley is, is learned by American students. President Trump studied in the 1960s during a time when isolationism, high tariffs, and retreat from the world was at the nadir, nadir of public opinion. This is the post-World War II generation. I mean, this, is, this was, you do not, isolationism is bad. And... That tariff, the Smoot-Harley tariff, was part of the standard teaching then, as it is now. So I'm sure he learned it, though I can't say if it's front-forward in his beliefs or his memory at, at the present time. I can't say for that. Um, 
We did the podcast on Reed Smoot. And I would make a few points to be fair about tariff that points that uh, someone arguing a straight up comparison to any tariff now and Smoot Hawley might, might, uh, talk about. Tariffs were very, very high in the 19th century, really high. And while lowered, Smoot Hawley made them fairly high by modern standards. Proposed tariffs compare favorably so far and their scope is much lower. Even tariffs of, say, 25%, you know, you were looking at double that or even more several times that for some items in these early tariffs. Secondly, it's not clear that Smoot-Hawley caused the Depression. It might have deepened it a bit. Um, many people phrase it the other way, which is not correct, that it caused the Depression. Trade was already low. GDP was already low. Unemployment already low. When the bill passed and was signed. A, a good way to phrase it is the depression was pretty deep. People needed every point of GDP and Smoot Hawley didn't help. Now third, one could ideally focus tariffs today only where a company is punishing the US and not do it broadly. And fourth, Smoot himself justified the tariffs as protecting businesses and workers from massive and fast changes. In his time, he was talking about electronics, automobiles, radio, global markets, aeroplanes. I don't agree necessarily with that contention, but I think it's important to put that argument out there, that he wasn't doing the tariffs merely to just make people rich, business people rich. It was to save jobs and give workers some breathing space in the United States while they dealt with these changes in technology. I'd like to see Smoot Hawley more in the public discussion and so that some of the negatives of tariffs could be addressed. And some of those negatives I've brought up in my cast have been brought up by characters in history. Once tariffs are enacted, there's, there's legislative gaming that goes on by industry lobbyists that historically tended to up tariffs overall. It's like an arms race. William Jennings Bryan famously said in that in the last ta uh, cast we did on Howard Taft, William Howard Taft, with a protective carrot, you, with a protective tariff, you never know when to stop. Senators, you know, during both the Payne Aldridge and the Smoot Hawley tariff, were were saying they would not protect an industry unless their state's industries were protected. That's going to move up all tariffs. So. If you're a senator from a sugar-producing state, you're going to end up protecting steel because that's what you're going to have to do to get your tariffs done. That's how it works. Many tariffs on Smoot-Hawley were not had nothing to do with Reed Smoot. They were added in conference, and it was the same with Payne Aldridge. It wasn't necessarily Nelson Aldridge making those uh, additional tariff changes. It was the conference. So, you know, another point to make is tariffs not only annoy other nations, but they raise prices on consumers. And they reduce consumer buying power greater than when we raise a few incomes in a few industries. It's not a popular subject. We don't want to celebrate Walmart. We don't like to celebrate things made in China. But there's, you know, that's just something in the United States that's not possible. But there's another side to it. We gain buying power from those prices, whether we think about it or not. 
and so do all the services that we use. The ability to buy cheaper products that might be imported is such a complex part of daily life. And I really think people have no idea what they're doing or no idea what they're tinkering with when they're going to raise a few of these and perhaps trigger a cascade because it's not just about a fork being cheap for my household. It's also a fork being cheap for the restaurant that I go to. And that's just one example across many. You know, if things are more expensive for a business, they might not have funds to secure another worker. So, you know, the the labor, we focus so much on wage wages and bringing wages up and unemployment. Price, you know, doesn't, it's more invisible, but it's just as real. Another point to make is we sell and buy goods, not just buy. I mean, inquire the company you work for. What percentage of their sales goes to people outside the U.S.? And then inquire what the planned growth of the company is. What what growth are they planning this year? How will they make up and still get that growth if there's a potential loss of sales outside the U.S.? Because there might be retaliatory tariffs against our products originating in the U.S. So, These are things that I I don't think we think about. And then finally, for those that are fans of small government, it must be said, a tariff is not in any way a small government solution, nor is it reflective of libertarian principles, principles of liberty or freedom. It is a government restriction both against companies and against consumer choice. Another question I was asked, why was gray used as the color of Confederate uniforms? You know, I don't always take like questions like this. I'm usually doing political questions, but what the heck? It's because of logwood. It's because of sumac and a kind of walnut. You start with uh, during the Civil War, the Confederacy had to rule out blue. Eventually, you know, there were some beginning battles where both sides were wearing some blue uniforms. But getting shot by your own is to be avoided. And the Union troops had the blue. The U.S. Army had the blue. The indigo that was an ample supply in the South would have to be ruled out. Then I think you have a couple of factors. It's the availability of dyes. It's the fact that Virginia cadets were wearing gray. It's the fact that gray is an easier color. Green and bright red, for instance, are expensive, impractical, And if you decide on those colors, you have to get the shade perfect. Gray is more forgiving. Gray can also be made in a lot of different ways. For instance, you could overwash the blue, which we all may have experienced with an old pair of jeans. Gray had that military connotation. Militia units and cadet uniforms employed gray already. Some people already had gray uniforms. For mass production of gray, which was a reality in the beginning of the war, when there are more textile factories working on Confederate uniforms, they would have employed sumac dyes and logwood dyes. They're fairly common, obtainable from existing supplies, obtainable from South America or from British blockade running. They make a decent gray. You know, it can kind of make a purple too, 
um, if you dye logwood, but it can also make many shades of gray. As it became less possible to do sumac logwood and really to even keep some textile plants open producing uniforms, uh, as the supply depot of the CSA didn't function as well, butternut oil, a kind of walnut, would have been used for an easy-to-find dye. This is why we have the term butternuts for Confederate soldiers or Western Northerners who didn't support the war. Butternut jackets could be done at home, and that's the way it had to be in some later parts of the war. You know, so you could have called it blue versus grayish brown, but, you know, blue blue versus gray sounds better. A somewhat similar subject, what was the reasoning behind the 17th Amendment to the Constitution? It was perceived corruption and rich people, really rich, powerful people in the United States Senate. At the turn of the century, there was a large progressive movement in which a lot of reforms were undertaken. How successful the progressive movement was, you know, somewhat debatable. People at the time did not feel represented enough as the people by their states, in practice meaning the state legislature. They felt that they'd rather elect senators by a vote of the people, by a vote of the people who are voted by the people, right? Direct election. There's a perception that state legislators could be bought, or if not bought outright, at least controlled through bosses who made themselves senators. Matthew Quay, William Lorimer, Roscoe Conkling, James Smith. These are examples of senators who, over time, were well-known political bosses in their states and made themselves senator when five will get you ten, a people's vote in the state, would never have elected him. Um, Woodrow Wilson, you know, when he's asked to appoint a senator, Is, in, is encouraged to appoint James Smith, the boss of, of New Jersey, who put him, really gave him the nomination for governor. And there's a governor, a senator in Colorado, just outright buys his seat. I mean, there's too many situations where states had no federal representation in the Senate because they were deadlocked. Two parties were so equally matched in the state legislature, they couldn't pick a person. Serious state issues were now subject to senatorial horse trading in the state. You know, I'll vote for your senator if you vote for my dam on this river. Or I won't vote for your senator if you don't. The delays and this additional requirement of horse trading just angered people enough to take it away from 29 of the states already. 29 of the states had election by the people from their own state rules even before the 17th Amendment. So you could see the popularity of this idea. When the Constitution was written, voting in each state was different. Not all states had direct votes of all people. This is part of the thinking that the lack of direct democracy in the Constitution, you know, 
at the president and Senate level. South Carolina only allowed large landholders to vote. Direct democracy was more doable at the turn of the 20th century and thus the 17th Amendment. Another reason that helped it along that doesn't get talked about much is members of the House of Representatives were a bit jealous. By 1912, the House of Representatives had already considered an amendment five times, but each time the Senate blocked the amendment. House members, it appeared, were tired of having to go in front of the people when senators didn't have to. Or at least it made it easier for House members to vote for the 17th than senators. So it had no, the 17th Amendment had no problem. It was an easy vote for the House of Representatives because it affected that other body. Now, there's going to be a lot of criticism of the 17th. There is now, even in modern times, that it's taking away representation of the states, that the states now have no voice in the federal government. Well, it is true that state legislators lost their representation in the federal government outside of amendments. But states themselves did not. The Senate still reflects the representation by states. This occurs because the size of states First, the equal number of senators factor. So Delaware and California both have two senators. There's still plenty of state representation in the federal government because of that. If the 17th had cut states into even geographic areas or even population areas and gave each state two elected by the people, it would be true to say that state representation as we had known it was gone. But all the 17th did was change who decides what the state wants, who's who's to determine what the states want. And progressives who were responsible for passing the 17th Amendment decided that it would be the people of that state instead of the legislature or the people that the people voted for. Now, just in case we think that states never bring their narrow interests to the federal government, that's ridiculous. Look at the issue of ethanol. The issue would have never appeared on the national scene without the influence of and smaller states with representation in the Senate and the fact that a lot of senators like to run for president. Well, I think that'll do it. I just wanted to answer a few questions uh thanks so much for you know subscribing to the premium podcast for my history can beat up your politics um i'm gonna tend to t- i mean if i get a question from a premium subscriber i mean i want to be elitist but i'm gonna try to help you guys out and uh try to, to answer your questions you guys have been longtime listeners and i think your questions will be of interest to a large audience so let me know you know contact me thanks for listening Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.